0: Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to blue Nile.com. That's Bluenile.com. Hello and welcome to
2: the Media Podcast Edinburgh TV Festival special. I'm Jake canter the executive editor of Business Insider. On today's show, Jeremy Corbyn's big idea for tech giants to subsidise the BBC, Michaela Cole's punch on the nose for British TV in a brutally honest McTaggart lecture, and a rude awakening for television controllers about the way they do business. Plus, in the media quiz, our guests try to spot the difference between real commissions and pitches we made up. That's all to come in today's media podcast. Uh, We're sat in the heart of the EdTV Fest conference and uh, joining me are an illustrious panel of guests. Uh, With me today, BBC Controller of Factual Commissioning Alison Kirkham, MD of Production House Goldwaller Faraz Osman and BuzzFeed's TV editor Scott Bryan. Welcome all. Hello. Hello. So, quick festival highlight, please.
3: I thought the McTaggart was extraordinary, but I'm sure we'll talk about that later. At the other end of the spectrum, as a Love Island addict, I thought Jack and... Danny brought sunshine to the whole festival. Actually, well,
2: that's nice, mm, and oh, clearly the biggest show of the year, yeah, or, were, or at least in talk, talked about terms. Anyway, they
3: were just <laughs> and they were just as sort of sweet and adorable as you'd hope that they would be. It was a love, it was interesting, and it was a lovely, heartwarming session as
4: well. Scott, I agree I loved the Love Island session and just because it was just so weird I also really like the McTaggart but I've just literally just come from the Dairy Girl session and it was just so full of small nuggets of info behind the scenes that you just would never have been able to pick up elsewhere so for example all of the cast have a WhatsApp group between them and they just share memes from the show to each other all the time (laughs) it's just so heartwarming and just like stories like one of the cast members was until the first show which has been Channel 4's biggest show in Northern Ireland and an absolutely huge hit she had just quit her job in a pub just to go and start that and that's her first role and now it's the biggest show Channel 4 has done in terms of, terms of comedy it's just so nice because they're so excited as well and it's so so nice seeing a show on the up
5: and finally for us I'm like literally pulling out my like <laughs> <that> Edinburgh <laughs> like, like programme to figure out what I've seen program and I'm your look, look how look how, look how glossy it is because it <laughs> it's like I've seen so much but um you know, you come, you come to this and I think you spend the first day going, oh my God, I'm in the most exciting place in the world. And now I'm on the second day, which is I'm an independent producer and you've seen all of the other stuff that people have done through the year and get insanely jealous about the amazing work that is... And this is not just me naval gazing and picking up the industry there has been some awesome trails that have been put up here the, the Netflix have just shown the formula one thing that they're doing with box to box and uh, and that just looks incredible and it's not just a fluff piece of formula one it feels like they've got proper access there I've just come out of Patrick Holland's session from BBC two and he's got a really interesting slate of new um, new factual stuff and you kind of that's off the back of what Charlotte more i just realised I'm sitting next to Alison he's <laughs> like yep yeah, no, no, I'm like keep going keep again. going no, it's like, but it's just come Lattery off the back is, of <laughs> for Peaky Blinders, moving from BBC2 to BBC1, so you kind of go, well, he's going to be in a really bad move for the whole session. It's like, look at my reel and all the stuff that I've got coming up. And it's like, you get re-excited really about what's going to happen in telly in the next year. Um, and you just hope that that permeates across the audiences. And they stop watching Snapchat and start
2: watching telly again. Interesting. All programming highlights. Uh, so that's why we're going to start with Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, so the Labour leader, a late booking at the festival, turned up with some radical ideas for TV and journalism. Among a swathe of proposals, he said that tech giants like Amazon, Google, Facebook and Netflix should supplement the BBC's funding with a tax he calls the digital licence fee. Scott? Where to start?
4: I think, like, at the end of the day, when somebody comes up with a big, bold idea... I think just to dismiss it straight out of the bat is, you know, a bad thing. I think But you're going to do that. Yes. <laughs> but... The, the way The way that I sort of see it is that, you know, there's been a lot of talk about license fee, particularly with young viewers watching shows on demand. They might not feel that having a license fee is relevant for them. So I can sort of see this idea of a digital license fee. But not in this way I feel that you know there's so many it brings up so many questions more than I think it tries to answer so for example how much money do they take from these large organizations is it just on profits you know a lot of these large kind of companies aren't based in the UK you know and then it's like well where where are we going to get their money from how much there is a chat about how it's going to be according to their share and it's like well if you're Twitter and you're Facebook then does Twitter therefore pay more than Netflix they're all serving different things what it all comes down to is that a license fee belongs to every household, it belongs to every single person who watches the TV, the BBC is, is, is ours, it's not perfect by any means by the way it's funded I think but it, it serves a good value because you know that your money at the end of the day is paying towards it I think when you're giving that from the taxes purely based from these large companies that you know, change you know, Facebook and Twitter are new entrants into the market in the last 10-20 years then it doesn't have that sustainable when it doesn't necessarily feel like whose interest is it really serving?
2: Fraz, a threat to independence?
5: I don't know if I'm not clever enough to get it, but I just don't get it. Firstly, he went in on you. Like you asked a couple of <laughs> questions in that session, and it seemed to like he asked you if you wanted to be an elected editor, <laughs> and he, uh, he seemed to start having a little go. I at, didn't want to be a, a journalist, spokesperson but for also journalists. supporting journalists, and, and there was a bit of a weird atmosphere around his opinion of newsprint and whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, of journalists are a good thing or a bad thing. So that was a little bit confusing.
2: I mean, the main thing I was driving at is it sounds like to me that this could be a significant threat to the BBC's independence. If, if it came to pass.
5: He's raised some interesting ideas, and I think that those ideas are worth debate. My, my view is that I think that the licence fee and how it's collected is outdated. What I think should happen is that the licence fee should be a levy on... ISPs. So when you take out your broadband subscription, every home, pretty much every home has one now, there should be an additional levy which pays for your licence fee. Everyone pays it. You haven't got this weird thing where the TV controller is coming up in a van and like, knocking on your door because they have paid your licence fee. People start to understand that the BBC is a digital service now. I, I think Jeremy was a bit astonished that there was more than just a website that the BBC did, but based on what he said in that, in, in that session. But once people can understand that the BBC is something that is a, a public service thing, People just do want to pay it, but there's a lot of support for the BBC. It's a little bit convoluted and complicated about how you do pay for it. If they slapped a levy on ISPs at the point of entry to, to where it comes into your house and it's clearly marked on everyone's bills, I think that's fine. But introducing a separate tax on American companies who are actually quite democratic because you've got lots of YouTubers that can make their own channels and do their own thing It feels to me like a a convoluted argument that is just too complicated. It hurts my head slightly.
2: If only we had someone from the BBC to talk about (laughs) this.
3: (laughs) Um, It's not appropriate for me to comment on specific political proposals in relation to the BBC, but what I would say is... When he he'd certainly laid out some big ideas, and in doing so, he said he wanted to invite and stimulate debate. And I thought it was a shame, therefore, that the festival had him interviewed by someone whose opening gambit was, "I'm not going to grill you." And I thought the that Q was Maxim Peak, just was, to be clear. <laughs> yeah, and I thought the Q and A could have been much more um, interrogatory, It could have bottomed out some of the thinking around the ideas. Instead, we're sort of left with lots of questions, and, and it wasn't clear what lay behind the ideas.
2: What do you make of the idea of having a sort of sister corporation, a British digital corporation?
3: Well, I agree with the point that was just made. You know, there, there seems to be a lack of understanding that the BBC is already a very digital organization and it is and for me personally i think it's a a real asset that the digital offer is an integral part of the broader bbc offer i'm not sure that it would serve audiences i'm not sure it would make um, economic sense to peel the two away and create two separate organizations i don't i don't see the value or benefit in that
4: I mean, it's I gone. find that after so many years where the BBC's been talking about how much it is turning digital and all of the digital investments it's done, and the rise of iPlayer, I, I find it bizarre to say that you have to separate we, something.
5: We've just delivered a, a piece around the British Asian season for BBC Three on Instagram, and that, like, if this if this world appears where there's a, the BDC, like, where does that sit? Do I need to go and speak to a, a digital broadcasting corporation to get my Netflix short form piece commissioned, which is representing online? Influencers who have been discovered via a platform that they now want to tax. It just doesn't Mm -hmm. feel like it's aware of the world that's emerging right now.
3: And you know, what Damien and his team have done with BBC Three is extraordinary. It's it's such a vibrant part of the BBC offer, it's absolutely um, central and and a key part of what BBC content more broadly has to offer. If I look at factual specifically, which is the department that I run, you know, I've just recruited a, a digital factual commissioning team that sits within. Our, commis- our broader commissioning team, and as I said, you know when we 're commissioning for linear we 're thinking about digital at the same time, and it 's a holistic approach to it, so uh, for me. That's a really sort of reaping benefits. We can see that it's driving younger audiences, both from BBC3 to iPlayer, and, and it feels like it's the right direction of travel, a really vibrant, exciting direction of travel.
2: Just finally, on Corbyn, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Faraz, <laughs> I know you want to come in, but we've, we've got so much to get through. Away from the walls of TV for a moment. Right. It, it, one of his suggestions was electing editors. Now, you and I are, are journalists. Yeah. Do you think that's ever going to be plausible, or reality that's ever going to come to pass? I
4: mean, I think...
2: Is it a good idea, Well, you can
4: argue that, you know, it's good to have an editor that reflects the needs of what the journalists want to have. You know, I think we all like to be in a scenario where we get to choose our own boss. But sometimes people become bosses because they're incredibly capable and make tough decisions that you might go against that might be actually in the interest of everybody. You know, it's it's, it's no lie that I think some media organisations might have... Somebody who is incredibly good at their job and not so popular with the staff—it's—it's—it's it's, it's just. I think it's just one of those things where a good if they somehow manage to have an initiative to go wider, but incredibly hard to go and tell an organisation how they can run their business because you know some things. Being a journalist myself, some things I might think to myself: okay, that doesn't necessarily work as an you know as as an industry, but I don't think that it's right for politicians to say how the media should operate in, in this way when it comes to these sort of things
2: uh, also at the conference controllers of the bbc itv channel 4 sky and channel 5 were presented with the findings of a survey on what producers really think of the commissioning process uh, slow or indecisive decision making cancelled meetings and indies starting production without an official green light were all highlighted but some broadcasters performed better than others faraz you're a producer can I just say, uh, for, people,
5: for viewers at home, I'm I'm sitting with Scott in between me and Allison. So, so Allison from
2: the Commissioning side is over there, me from the indie side. I'm is on having one a side. lovely time. So uh, you need you need this a fun little day. Go on, Jake. What would you like to know? I mean, I, you know, I've been covering TV for seven, eight years, and it feels like these gripes are kind of perennial issues. Do you think that they're worse now than ever or is it just the way the industry functions? Well, (laughs) I think it's the way the industry functions and the thing that I'm
5: worried about is that this debate, the right response inverted commas to this debate is let's put a system in place and everyone has to get back to their emails within 48 hours and they have to say this, 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 this and this and it created BBC Pitch which is another thing and it's a system in place my feeling of having worked in commissioning and now working as a producer is the way that this needs to be done is every single commissioner is a human being being. They have different ways of how they want to receive ideas, how they want to see ideas, and how they take ideas forward. Um, sometimes people want to see more decks that are more visual. Some people want to see tapes. Some people just like getting on one-liner. Some people go, I want to follow the system, put it on BBC Pitch. I won't talk to you till it's there. My feeling is, is that we need to start being more transparent about individual commissioners, how they like their point of entry being done, so I can kind of go right, the, the commissioning editor for Factual at the BBC would like a one liner, here's my one liner of the idea but Channel 5 say, you know what, I don't want to see your idea until you fully flesh it out and you can give me an episodic breakdown, so I can spend time doing that and not waste my time there but to suggest that all commissioners need to behave in exactly the same way and respond in the same way with feedback, I, I just don't think it's a realistic way of how this industry Runs and I would much rather see individual commissioners being more forthright and saying, I like my ideas being presented like this. If you've got a thought, come to me and let's have a conversation over a cup of coffee, over an email, let's do it over tweet, if that's how they like doing it. Do, do commissioners not do that
2: when they're talking to producers on a on a one to one level? Uh,
3: they do, but but he, he's right, you know, that there is a sort of standardized all ideas have to go through pitch for, for some good reasons, you know, it's about so we can keep track of who's submitted what idea when and we can protect IP and, and, and sort of it's auditable in that way. But you know, I agree with Ben Frau, you know, it is paramount to me that suppliers have a good experience. When they come to us, because our output will only ever be as good as the suppliers we work with and the ideas they bring us. And then, from the point of pitch, I hope, my ambition is that it's a really collaborative process and they feel that we sort of add editorial value and help them refine and enhance the delivery of their program. And you know, that session's troubling, and the thing that I think is most troubling is the uh, enormous disc- discrepancy in. Um, Perceptions, you know, that there seems to be a fundamental mismatch in how people feel about the process. So, you know, I'm going to go away and talk to the commissioning team about it. Uh, I don't think you can sit in a session like that and ignore that feedback. I think we've got to re-engage with, you know, there hasn't been a commissioning survey for a few years... Uh, I felt like it was improving and anecdotally people were telling me it's improving but if it's not, we've got to address it again and we've got to re-engage with suppliers and find out where it's going on wrong and think about how we can work to improve it even more. So why
2: is there that discrepancy? Why do producers think everything's terrible and commissioners think everything's crazy? I think in the end, when
3: you do surveys, like you probably lean on the one bad experience you've had. And I'm not dismissing it as not being of significant value. And, and, you know, even if that's true, certainly relative to the other broadcasters, we're doing worse. so We've got to take that seriously. Uh, we work with a lot more suppliers than the other channels, so I guess there's an opportunity for it to go wrong more. But I, that, that's the bit that troubled me, that commissioners have such a different perception of what the issues are and of how they are interacting with suppliers than the suppliers do. So we've got to take it seriously and think about it. So,
2: I mean, Danny Cohen sat on that platform five years ago and said much the same. So are we, are we, are we saying that nothing's changed?
3: You know, my, I felt that it was changing. And certainly anecdotally, since I've been running Factual... Suppliers will come to me and tell me how much better it is. But, you know, sitting in that session, I've got a question. Do people just come to me with the good news? And that's sort of almost the wrong way around. I'd like them to come to me with the bad news. and uh, One of the things I'll be really engaging with suppliers say is, like, I still got the sense in that session that people feel like if they complain, that's sort of going to be a black mark against them. And And I promise all suppliers out there, good ideas are too few and far between to not take them from someone because they complained that you know that cancelling that meeting incurred a cost for them you know that is a legitimate complaint to make so I would invite suppliers if they are having issues if they do think there are ways we can improve please come and talk to me and do so knowing confidently that that will not in any way impact your um, chances of being commissioned the two things are not connected
5: the thing is is that as a supplier I've just started a new Indy. Charlotte said what you said Alice is saying it now I really wish I could believe it, but I am not under any circumstances. It is just too much, too, too much jeopardy for my production company to go, you know what, I'm going to send a little email to Alison or Charlotte about this commissioning editor that didn't get back to me. Because if that, gets back, if that commissioning editor figures out who I am, it's, it's, again, people are humans, and we work in a very cutthroat industry, and it's just not worth my while rocking the boat in that way. I'm just more likely to kind of go, I didn't get a good response from that commissioner, I'm going to go and try my luck elsewhere. I would love to honestly I would love to have an honest collaborative relationship with all the commissioners that are in this room in this way but frankly I'm running a really super small indie I'm not nowhere near powerful enough to kind of go actually I'm going to kick the can around and be a a troublemaker because then that's the reputation I get I want to have a reputation as a decent programme maker and not someone that moans because they didn't get an email back within 48 hours and it's very easy to kind of have the two conflated i think
3: it just makes me sad because uh, you said earlier that everyone's a human being and you know we have to sort of treat each other with respect and if small indies are having meetings cancelled and they're incurring travel costs that's not good enough and that's a legitimate sort of human complaint and if rather than complain and i i hear what you're saying and i understand the sort of logic from your perspective but if after that complaint you then won't bring the idea to us we lose out on the good idea so you know maybe I would encourage those who do, do feel comfortable to do it, you know, maybe then the more established Indies please do do it, and in the meantime we 've sort of got to get our house in order as well and and make sure we're addressing some of the issues that are being raised.
2: Fascinating little debate there. So, Scott, just just final word to you. <laughs> <laughs> Given
4: um, you're sitting in the middle. Yeah, I, I feel like I feel like the referee. Kind of this is... Uh, Scott You're, uh, like,
5: you're never going to guess what uh, Alison did to me
2: this time. It's like you're on Wimbledon Centre Court and watching the ball go back and forth. So, I mean, I guess as viewers... The most important thing is that these troubles, these, these concerns don't spill over into what we see on screen and the quality doesn't reduce as a result of it.
4: Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is, it's been, been really rather fascinating seeing this argument develop today because even though I work within the industry and I write about it a lot, it's not necessarily an issue that I was necessarily that aware of. I only get the finished product of it like, ta-da, it's on BBC One 8pm or, you know, Netflix or whatever. The fact is that I find at the moment we're at a fight of ideas because all of the the new entrants are going in, you've got digital entrants coming in, you've got existing channels coming in, and what really cuts through at the moment is just a good idea. So, of course, if there's stuff behind the scenes that's getting in the flow of of, a real good idea developing, then I think that that has a real bad, you know, implication for, for viewers as well, because they lose
2: out on a show they might actually fall in love with. Okay. Enough about policy and uh, commissioning tensions. Let's, uh, let's skip through some creative highlights. We're going to start with you, Scott. <laughs> new collaborations and partnerships are always forged at the festival. And this year, uh, there was an announcement that uh, BuzzFeed and Twitter are collaborating on a new sort of TV show, I guess.
4: <laughs> yeah, it's like a show that we review TV on Twitter <laughs> That's not going to be on TV. But basically... And you're um, hosting. Yes, I'm hosting it with uh, a colleague, Dion, who's a social, social media editor. And how it all came about was, about in January, I had a rant, also bizarrely, on Twitter, where I was talking about how there's not really a place where people regularly review and debate TV. And I find it a bit weird, considering that we're having this explosion of content. Not just new entrants and all of the future, but in terms of you know, box sets being available on BBC iPlayer, and all four, and uh, Sky are now re- doing box sets that are dating back years and people are starting to get a bit confused about, okay, well, what show is... is you know, worth their time and I think the main sort of core of the show is not necessarily to encourage people to watch yet more shows it's just kind of telling them shows that you know, are worth their time so they use their time better so we would have you know, people uh, we, we would ask out in terms of shows that people are, have been watching and falling in love with we would get rec- recommendations for shows that people might like or hate we would do a bit of a review but the idea is less about my opinion and Dion's opinion and more about everyone else What's on Twitter Twitter thinks yeah, because Twitter is, I think, a call. Like, I think everyone here has watched the show probably because they've seen a recommendation on Twitter. And I feel that in the old days, we'd read like, the Radio Times and that would be lovely, and we still do. But it's harder in terms of trying to find that real good show now. Do you monitor Twitter when your shows are going out, Alison?
3: I do. I mean, I think... At the beginning, if something blew up on Twitter, there was this real sense of, like, the overnights are going to be amazing. And that correlation isn't accurate. That's you do Something can be really prominent on Twitter and not rate well. But what you are getting on Twitter is it, you're beginning to understand the audience response to something. So you get that sort of feedback loop, which is really, really valuable. It's like can a it focus group. Can
2: be gratifying or like really d- disheartening?
3: It can be both. <laughs> <laughs> At um, the same
2: time on one but, show. But you know, I, for
3: me, t- I, I love TV and I love the connection with the audience. And I feel really passionately about it. And, and what it does do is it sort of invites you into that community. And when you're able to share the response to a program that you love, it just is sort of immensely rewarding, actually.
2: For as you were animated about this. Yeah, it's points of view,
4: isn't it?
6: You just points <laughs> of view. It's <That's> amazing.
4: <laughs> I'd like to complain about this backdrop being the wrong shade <laughs> of, of blue. it's of the is too, loud. Isn't, it? isn't that right? I mean, to be yeah. honest, I like watching but because the weird thing, I did an article once where I got Americans to watch British TV shows. We send them like, an episode of Gogglebox and an episode of like, the biggest show that, that week. The biggest reaction by all of like, the, the Americans who watched it, points of view. They were like, the fact that you have a point where people have a moan about very small things in TV shows this is revolutionary to us because on commercial TV in the US you just don't have a place to moan and they say this is the most British thing I've ever heard and I love it it, is it still on? yes of course it's still on (laughs) who presents
2: points of view now?
3: Um, yeah, Jeremy, Jeremy Vine has just right. stepped down from Point He's
2: left. Yeah, I knew. I knew someone's gone. Scott, you doing? <laughs> <laughs> having a lovely he's time.
4: Audition. Having Scott, a lovely time. at kind of spooky, Edinburgh spooky timing. I'm gonna say. I think it's, I think it's a
5: great idea. Yeah. Uh, I do think echo, um, that Twitter is a bit of an echo chamber, and I think you're going to get a lot of particular kind of views based around TV shows that, that people are very vocal about. On Twitter, but there is definitely a space for this. And interestingly, it's come off the back of what Empire have done with their magazine Pilot. Um, So it seems to be a real appetite for taking TV more critically seriously, which
2: is exciting. Okay, another theme at the festival Uh, the continued struggle to find the next big entertainment hit. Uh, ITV's Kevin Ligo said he's not pitched enough. Uh, Sky has all but retreated from shiny floor shows. And the BBC's next big idea is a dance format with Simon Cowell or from Simon Cowell, I should say. Scott, what's going on? Is entertainment dead?
4: I think it's entertainment dead. Wow. (laughs) I'd say that with any show, there is possibly an appetite of, we need a hit, we need a hit now, we need a hit immediately. And even the bigger shows like Bake Off started on BBC Two, took a while to get going. Big formats like Gogglebox started on a Thursday night at 10 took a little while to get going you have to nurture these things you have to tweak the hell out of them you have to you have to find it the way that it is and I feel that there's possibly there's appetite now that because uh, Netflix had dropped a whole series in one go like nailed it you know, or Queer Eye for example it has to be amazingly you know, a big surefire hit straight away and uh and, you know, and yet yeah, you can understand that I think viewers can don 't have the patience they had as much before, but also you can 't have a perfect thing out of the pan because there is that feedback like like you you were saying there is that that feedback Alison in terms of the people behind the show or people who are commissioning shows keeping an eye out for audience reaction and then feedback and using that in future formats.
3: I mean, Angela Jane said it yesterday in the Love Island session. You know, that first series averaged to half a million. And she, uh, she sort of quite amusingly said, you know, we made 36 episodes in the first series and by episode 36 we'd figured out how to make it. Um, and then they laid all that expertise into series two and people questioned why they recommissioned it. And you're right, you look at shows like Gogglebox... Bake Off, The Apprentice, these are shows that were under two million in their first series so uh, it does require patience on the part of the TV industry and the audience and I think we are in a sort of faster turnaround industry so it's hard.
2: Are audience expectations too high? Is the industry's expectations too high? Is critics, are their expectations too high? I mean it's so exposing when you launch something in prime time on on BBC One. Do we have to have patience?
3: I think it's a combination of all those things, but I also think the industry hasn't fully... Adjusted to uh, the different measures of success actually you know shows we talk about consolidated audiences but we don't really register them we still live by the overnight and these shows some of these shows are putting on like two million it, it consolidated and that significantly changes the way you would perceive it but we're not, we're not looking at it enough so it, it's a very very different landscape even than five years ago and these big entertainment shows are being launched in the most profile, high profile slots you know on Saturday night where it's really exposing so it's hard
5: with Scott doing Buzzfeed and Twitter show is going, wow, well, you guess what it's this Saturday night? I mean, it's, But this is the problem, right? You're so killing got, entertainment, got, Scott. Yeah.
4: <laughs> I never knew that I was the yeah.
5: one. <laughs> the difference between we talk about Gogglebox, we talk about Strictly, we talk about, what's that show called? Great British Bake Off, that's the one. They're all kind of in a. Alison's <laughs> pre- never heard of it. Twitter. <laughs> era i mean obviously twitter was around when those shows were around but but they weren't launched at the same sort of time and i think now if a show lands and it doesn't land on episode in the first five minutes everybody starts on twitter it gets trending what is this it's a mess why is this person hosting it and i don't think that that comfort blanket of let's try something out see if it works give it a couple of seasons like love island has is possible anymore if you want to put it on Primetime Saturday night. You know, maybe this is a space that BBC Three can be experimenting more in. You know, let's try entertainment shows more in, on that channel, see if we can get some talkability around it and, and bring an audience to it and then see if it can graduate up the schedules. But, but exactly. we are living in a world now where people make snap decisions very, very quickly from both an editorial side and an audience side.
6: But
4: also on the flip side, I sort of feel that, you know, social media can be good in terms of nurturing shows and getting behind it. So for example, case in point, The Big Nasty Show, that started um, on Channel 4 on 11pm slot on a Friday. It was very inventive. They hadn't necessarily thought, you know, whether it, it would work. It rated OK for the first week. But then it had a really good social media reaction on Twitter. And then each week it built and built and built its audience. So they're now giving a second season and a spin-off for Mo Gilligan on that show for his own 10pm slot. So, and, and I feel that, you know, right, some people are very quick to go and say a show is awful I think we've we've all been guilty of that at times past but also I think that people understand that you know Twitter isn't everything I think like the case with like you know what we're trying to do with our show is is using it as a guide but we're not slave to Mm. making a quick quick judgement and that's it bash off to the next one I think it's kind of the case of you know I think people are having that kind of understanding that even the viewers themselves. It takes a while for a show to get going. It takes a while for a show to get perfect. It's just whether there's something else on the other channel that might be better.
2: Okay, well, talking about viewers and their relationship with new shows, um, there was an interesting idea raised by a new streaming service called LiveTree and they suggested that uh, audiences should vote uh, on the shows that get made. Amazon has done this a little bit as well with pilots Jeremy
3: Corbyn suggested the same in the alternative McTaggart said we could oh. vote on commissions
2: so what what do you think of that idea <laughs> as a commissioner
3: so how does it work what do you do like five pilots across the week and then the audience votes on which ones made.
2: possibly I, I think we have we have open open season here. I mean
3: we can- are you we should listen to our audiences uh, you know I wouldn't discount audience input it depends how it would work but is an interesting concept.
5: Didn't didn't Danny do this? Isn't this what Danny Cohen did when he relaunched BBC Three? He had a set of pilots that he then comedy feeds. Yeah, or something like. I, mean, I swear that there, there was um, there was something that was similar to Kick Ass that got that got done by. Um, Jamie Hewlett, that was part of a an initial run of pilot pilots on BBC Three, and some of them got went to series. And didn't. am I making this up? I feel I, I, like this happened. I, I don't. I may have dreamt it. I don't it. know. But
3: in a way, the audience does it already, doesn't? Don't they? Because yeah. when you yeah. pilot something, you look at how it does with the audience, and if it does well, you commission a longer run
4: and it's happening now I feel you know when a show gets cancelled and it's not yeah. viewers don't feel it's come to its natural end there's a massive campaign and then it might get picked yeah. up or poached by another channel it's happened I think more and more because of it oh my the god is that going to happen to Big Bang Theory <laughs> <laughs> I, I just sort of feel. <laughs> I just sort of feel that at the end of the day if viewers are just going to be voting for every show, they're only going to get shows that they necessarily want. Sometimes viewers need to be challenged. And the whole purpose, I think, is having a show... Sometimes you know, they might have a controversial angle to it to make people think differently. I think the People whole... don't
2: know what they want, basically.
4: I don't want to be the person to sort of ad- advocate that. I'm not saying all the time, like, oh, yeah, viewers shouldn't be... No. But I do feel that sometimes you have to go against the grain and be like, no, we're going to be doing this angle on this particular show, or we're going to bring up this uncomfortable issue because you need to talk about these sort of things that people might be uncomfortable about and expose it in a different way. you know. And sometimes you, like, you can be unaware of an issue until it is exposed on a show that therefore you feel that it should have more highlighted to. And that's because of a commissioner feeling very strongly about something that viewers might not.
3: You certainly want to retain the opportunity to surprise the audience. Absolutely. And in, in a sense, what, that's what channels are about. And I think that's still where there is a place for channels because they're curating an offer and sort of uh, they're building a th- flow through the night. You like this, well, you might like this. So, but the two things can coexist together, I think, and sort of do in a more informal way already.
5: Amazon did it, didn't work, they stopped doing it. And I I don't think TV should be homework. I think you should be able to watch a show and not have to kind of go, did you like that show? Please, can you fill out this form and tell us if you think it should be recommissioned? (laughs) Viewers don't want that. They just want people like commissioners to make decisions about what's good programming and and they get to watch it, enjoy it and consume it and not worry about giving it a five-star rating at the end.
4: And then maybe Slater on Twitter.
2: Leading the drive for a more diverse media is Sir Lenny Henry in Edinburgh for Michaela Cole's MacTaggart Lecture. You'll hear an excerpt from Cole in a moment, but first here's Lenny speaking ahead of the session.
6: Um, I've come up to see uh, Michaela Cole's uh, MacTaggart Lecture. I'm a huge fan of hers and I've been watching her since the beginning of Chewing Gum really and to see her at this point in her career is major. So I'm looking forward to hearing what she has to say about the industry about representation, about her career, about how she's been encouraged by people, all that stuff.
8: Who encouraged you in your career? And who
9: can you think of people who are doing the same for people like Michaela?
6: I had lots of people. I was a very uh, willing student. I had people like Chris Tarrant and Paul Jackson and Jeff Posner. They were all people who were working in production or direction. uh, Peter Bennett-Jones. And they just basically made me feel like I could do what I wanted to do. And pushed me towards it, Clive Tello.
0: And how how pleased are you with the reaction to your latest like uh, video, you know, the childish Gambino thing? It's been
6: lovely. It's been a very good response. I've had the odd "this is shit," but I've had lots of "this is great." So I'm really pleased. I've had a lot. There's a lot of likes.
2: So uh, Michaela Cole stunned the festival audience with her personal, powerful, and challenging McTaggart lecture. Uh, Cole spoke openly about her struggle for recognition as a writer, the treatment of her chewing-gum cast, and her own Me Too moments.
8: It was day one of the shoot. I approached the trailers to find five actors and actresses ranging in tones of brown and black, including the woman who plays my mother, bound up in one-third of a trailer. The second trailer was occupied by an actress looking like Privileged Piggy in the middle, and the third was mine, the writer. Prior to this... I wouldn't have dared enter the production office, but I burst through the door. The room fell silent, like a scene in EastEnders, and I was fully in my cat-slater mode. (laughs) You know what this looks like, don't you? Like a fucking slave ship. I know, I really did say that. (laughs) I'm not a racist, the producer screamed at me. She was red with rage and wet with tears. I know you ain't racist. That's what makes this all so fucking bizarre. I cat-slated the pub door. (sighs) Hours passed, there was a line, myself and the actors on one side, the producers on the other, and it wasn't crossed, for hours, we were even shooting, the mood, I was moody. The executive producer came to me, an outsider to production, and asked, what do we do? I suggested he apologize to everyone. Buy my mum, my on-screen mum, some nice flowers and get some more trailers. They did. I asked the actors why they agreed to share. They just wanted it to work. Their belief in the job only matched by their anxiety of losing it. I apologized. I told them we were working for a reputable channel and a reputable production company, and they wouldn't dream of recasting anyone for wanting a private space to prepare and change. I've often been told by many people in our industry that many producers in many companies test the waters to see what they can get away with. I told them the opposite of what I'd learned in drama school. I told these actors the only power we have is the power to say no.
6: Well, I'm Simon Albury. I'm chair of the Campaign for Broadcasting Equality. It seemed
2: to me to be a symphony. It was a major work which you can't slice and dice. Uh, But the most important theme to me to come out of it was transparency, which is so lacking in what I call diversity issues. We do not have transparency on black and minority ethnic people working on programs. Now that may not be the transparency she she was talking about, but she was talking about transparency and she was very transparent and I found it very moving.
7: Hi, I'm Jazz, and I'm a network delegate of this year. Hello, I'm Raven Navira. I'm a YouTube content creator doing fashion and lifestyle content.
2: It was a very brutally honest speech. How are you feeling coming out?
7: Overall, kind of indescribable, but largely empowered. Like, I think there's a power in speaking so frankly and truthfully about things that are very uncomfortable and especially coming from like a minority position and effectively like standing in front of a lot of people who are going to employ you and being so brutally honest about how you've come up in the industry and your experiences. There's a bravery in that that is just so empowering that I'd, I kind of sat there, like cried, laughed, went through it all and was just like, thank you so much because these are the kind of experiences that you don't hear about and to like break, like to literally stand there and speak your truth and kind of be like so unabashed about it and unapologetic is just so incredibly like strong you know you sort of see these shows and you think to yourself oh this is this is nice this is funny but you don't think about that actor or that producer's concept of how they got to where they are and the incredible difficulties and challenges that they face to bring the, their production, their baby as she called it, into the spotlight. At the same time being vulnerable but making everybody accountable as well. It can only take a true writer, a true producer to be able to do something like that to make you relate to them. As a black woman I relate to everything that she said. I've been through certain um, experiences like that myself and not only that but I too felt that like I needed to be accountable for other black people because now I have a platform and I need to be able to tell my story as well because it might inspire somebody else just like she's inspired me today.
0: Hello, I'm Chris Curtis, I'm the editor of Broadcast. That's not your normal McTaggart, is it? You know, sometimes you hear about uh, industry Trends. Sometimes you hear about uh, relationships between producers and broadcasters. Sometimes you hear about retransmission fees or the terms of trade. And then occasionally you get something like that—a really personal story. It was really interesting that she did that. You know, she's a storyteller, and so she took us on a narrative through her life. Lots of interesting ups and downs along the way, and then building to the sort of denouement—the tough challenges you face as an outsider in TV. If you're not part of the, if you're not part of the game, you don't know how the rules are uh, set up. Then you can get buffeted about. And then the big sort of revelation of her personally, you know, being sexually assaulted. Yeah, it was powerful stuff.
2: Claw leadership participant and broadcaster Brenda Imanis was also in attendance.
9: Michaela Cole just went past and she's really made the trip up for me because I just thought her Mataga lecture was awe inspiring and brave and, and this brilliant. And it's, and it's, but it's also left me feeling. Last night when I heard it, I actually felt a little angry and moved and, and passionate. But in hindsight, I think. She did the right thing and I hope it will make a huge change to the way that we all operate and a bit more sensitive to other people and their feelings and what it's like to be on the other side and to be the misfit and not to be white and male and in a dominant position and not thinking about other people's positions and how they are and how they feel and how they have to navigate a space which isn't theirs, which they've been invited into but not necessarily respected in. Do you think the TV industry and the media industry uh, on a wider scale takes advantage of people? That's a big question, and I don't think I want to automatically say yes, but I, th- I think there is some exploitation going on. I think it's an industry where exciting things happen. I love my industry, that's why we're all in it. That's why this place is packed, because we can do great things and we can create great work and we can inspire people, educate people, entertain people. In any industry, positions of power can be exploited and people can be exploited. I won't point fingers at anybody, but everyone's got their own individual experience, you know, and if we all sat down at a table and all given our own space, to talk. I'm sure we'll all have ways which we feel the industry could be Operate differently, and if we put our shoes on the other feet and we listen to those, the powers that be, they may then exercise to us or express to us the challenges that they face from their end. So there's always I always try and be fair and put shoe on the other foot and think there's two sides to the story. But I do think that we need to recognise that change is necessary, essential. That the industry is evolving, we evolve. We even evolve in our own careers. You know, you start off wanting to be one thing, you realise you've got other skills, or your skills aren't quite, or you have ambitions above your status, or you're actually better at something else. And you change, and we have to allow for that. We have to allow ourselves to be vulnerable. We have to allow ourselves to take risks, and we don't. It's a money-making industry, and people are, uh, avoid taking risks because it means you're losing money. And it's about being popular because we're about audiences. So, therefore, those that are popular, few that are allowed and manipulate and, and nurtured to be popular and be popular with audiences are all we get to see. So it does sometimes can restrict creativity and creativity resist new talent being exposed and resist different choices.
2: You can hear the entirety of Michaela Cole's McTaggart lecture in a separate media podcast coming soon. There was a lot in there, wasn't there? Who wants to to kick off?
4: I think being in that room, it was, I mean, exceptionally brave of her to be so open and so frank about what she had been through. I feel like the audience were, I think, astonished by some of the anecdotes that she was saying and some of the treatment stuff that she was saying. And I was having a discussion with somebody later who said, oh, I'm not sure the McTaggart um, speech is the right place to talk about this sort of thing. It's normally about policy. And I'm like, when else? When else are you going to have the opportunity to talk about the wrongs of the industry in front of many people who have that ability to make some changes for it? That's the whole point of this speech. It's not just detailing things about grand plans. It's talking about issues that have implications. And her speech was... I think, incredibly raw by saying, like, you know, this is what decisions, whether intentional or unintentional, you know, had the effect on me and my co-stars, and this is why I really want this to stop for other people.
3: It felt really timely. I mean, it was, it was such a sort of honest, personal McTaggart of a type that I don't think we've ever seen before. And it was extraordinary to hear, you know, that she was the first Bane person to give the McTaggart and only the fifth woman, which I thought was staggering but there's been such a sort of such a huge push in the industry around diversity over the past few years and the language that she used around that was so evocative wasn't it you know she talked about misfits being welcomed into the house and I just thought it was a really timely reminder to the industry that you know, as she described it, these misfits are being welcomed into the house but there's a real sort of onus on the industry to continue to make the house a welcome place and there's a sort of duty of care and responsibility to the workforce that we're bringing through and that felt really important. She was
2: kind of talking about treating people with decency.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: But And it sounds like that's not really happening on in some places in TV still.
3: The, the bit that was really personal that you felt like she felt like she was talking about a particular production company and you hope that, that her experiences will ride to the extreme, but, but, but probably they're not.
5: I, I felt like I watched an Edinburgh show and she delivered a piece of in, almost theatre in, in the way that she held the audience to a completely compelling story that you couldn't look away from. And I really did feel like, for the first time, I've been to a few McTaggarts now, and for the first time I felt like I had walked out of the TV festival and and into a personal experience that related to TV. And and I found that incredibly compelling. I'm from a BAME background, and and sometimes I get reminded about that, um, sometimes in a positive way, sometimes in an incredibly negative way. It is shocking that she's the first person from an ethnic minority background that has given that McTaggart, particularly when she walks away and then you see the leaders' debate and you go to all the controller sessions and and you just get reminded that actually the people in power don't have that shared experience that that she's talking about but are all scrambling to have it as part of their portfolio and put it on the schedules and give those people a chance, give those people a break. Um, and, And yet, I think that for me, what she was really putting out there was it's important to just have a moment and work out why you're doing these things and how you're representing people um, to make sure that you're doing it for the right reasons and, and not just because you see a problem and you need to correct it straight away.
3: Exactly. It, it, I felt it was exactly like that. Like, it's not a box-ticking exercise. She was It was a sort of clarion call for the culture to change yeah. throughout the industry in a more sort of meaningful, longitudinal way.
2: She talked about transparency a lot, didn't she? Yeah. And just being transparent about your experiences and and how you could help others is there not enough transparency in tv i mean we were kind of talking about yeah. it earlier in terms of you if, not if, wanting to challenge commissioners when you're feeling a bit hard done by because I, I, yeah. I think i think that
5: when it comes to when it comes to the the, the stats that have come out about the industry a, a lot of those stats come out because it's an it's an anonymous survey and it's the first time that you feel like you can give honest feedback about what's happening Michaela has been given an incredible platform and I think everybody I've spoken to about that McTaggart has said how brave it was because she was honest and it's almost like she talks about the bravery of being able to say no Um, she talks about the bravery of being able to do what she felt was right Um, but what I found really interesting and and honest about about that lecture was the fact that she, I don't know if she said it implicitly but it felt like she said a few times I don't know or maybe and, and actually rather than kind of going this is how it is this is what needs to change this is what we need to do it was just far more considered than that and it's just kind of her going sometimes I question myself sometimes I question my own actions sometimes I question how I got here and that's okay because coming back to the maybe the theme of this podcast they everyone's just human
4: trying to tell decent stories and we shouldn't assume that there's a right and wrong way of doing that. I find it really interesting also that we Um, wrote a piece about this at BuzzFeed and it seemed to have a real resonance beyond the media industry I felt it wasn't a media story per se or just a media story because when the story went up, there was a lot of kickback from people in different industries who were also experiencing the same issues that they are having and the same pressures that they are having and the same sort of bad treatment that they are having. And I think it's like a wider call of transparency across other industries, across the creative um, sector and um, you know, in, in terms of when there is a problem drawing attention to it and knowing that the implication doesn't mean that you're going to lose your job or negatively uh, one of the things she said was that she'd turned down a million pound Netflix deal did you clock that? I did not know <laughs> I did not know I think it's quite interesting because they Netflix is certainly all, always on the hunt for new talent and they're signing up people every single week I think it's quite interesting the fact that somebody turns down to it because I think people go oh the global reach tick that is exactly what I want and it's quite surprising particularly when you always hear such rose-tinted stories about how you have such creative freedom and you don't have to worry about the ratings and so forth.
5: But she, she told a very cautionary tale about success as well and uh, the, the person that she felt like she changed into after the success of the first season of Chewing Gum um, and and whether that was a positive experience or a negative experience. And again, this kind of whole idea of, of not saying it was this or it was that, but actually she felt like she was almost questioning her own experiences on stage in front of all of us and said and felt like she was still on that journey to work out what she wants her own artistry to be and and it was just i think there were some comments including from people like myself about she's not had like a whole load of series on tv and maybe she's still a bit too green to be giving the mctaggart but but actually having that experience from somebody that is I don't want to say just starting out, but is early, is, is almost in the spring of their career. I actually think it was really interesting because a lot of the time from the McTaggart, we get somebody that has had like a multi-decade career and is now saying, these are my experiences and I'm now passing on the baton to you to, tell you to tell you what to do in the future. And for Michaela, it was much more, this is what's going on right now. You lot are all having this live conversation right now and it's affecting lives and how this industry operates. We all need to kind of just take a minute and figure out if we're happy with the way it's going. She
2: finished with a question, didn't she? How are you going to fix the TV house? And I guess, did it leave you all thinking about what you're going to contribute to that?
3: Yeah, absolutely. As I say, it, was sort of, it felt like a clarion call. It felt like she was trying to rally everyone to examine their own beh- behavior and for the industry to collectively come together and ask some tough questions of itself. And it was just really refreshing that it wasn't a sort of corporate McTaggart, which it, it tends to be. And like you said, it, you know, it, she's a storyteller, so it was utterly compelling. You know, you know, she, she's a beautiful writer. She's a great performer. It was poetic, and, and you, you couldn't take your eyes off her, and you were compelled to listen to what she was saying and to reflect upon it. It was so It was, funny it was too. very powerful. It was funny, and yeah. it was really self-deprecating as well. You know, th- th- there are people who sometimes get up and lecture you, and I think that has much less of an impact than someone who sort of is prepared to get up and say, "These are my." Some foibles, and this is where I went wrong, and and, and prepared to be a bit self-deprecating. So, so. Well,
2: to get up on stage and admit you've taken cocaine several times is, is quite quite shocking and uh, uh, and brave in some ways. Yeah, I, I think actually, you know, without
5: trying to publicise the festival too much, but I, I've, you know. If you've read the headlines about that speech and maybe a BuzzFeed article or, you know, whatever, I I really do urge you to to watch the whole thing because, you know, she talks about sexual assault and that feels like a headline. She talks about taking cocaine when she became successful and that feels like a headline. But actually, the whole thing was, I I think, poetic. I think that it was an incredible piece of prose that didn't really... Stray into um, into kind of headlines or or, or trying to make a, a bold, splashy statement and wait for the oos and the ars in the room. It really is a story that needs to be watched from beginning to end, and, and I think that everyone will be well well deserved to kind of watch the whole thing in its entirety to get a real understanding as to what she's trying to say as an individual rather than just grabbing headlines.
3: Particularly the first half because there weren't headlines in the first half and she was just charting the story of her life and her career and you didn't really know where it was going to go to and then the sort of sucker punches all came in the second half but you're right, to miss the first half would be... You really are missing an utterly compelling account of someone's really incredible life change in a very short period of time.
2: Um, So finally... We have time for the media quiz, uh, which we've given an appropriate TV twist because we're in Edinburgh. Uh, Today, we're going to play a little game called Red Light, Green Light. Uh, The TV festival is always a honeypot of commissioning announcements. It's when controllers from across the land wheel out the big guns, the proper channel-defining shows, so it's only fair that we pay a bit of attention.
4: I feel that Alison's at a disadvantage here, <laughs> <laughs> just in terms of like some of the some of the ideas you might have heard of or commissioned. I wait, don't know. wait till I we hear the rules,
2: Scott. I, I, I'm,
4: I'm <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> I'm going to run through some of the announcements, uh, but along the way I'm going to throw in some fakes. Our guests, Alison, Faraz, and Scott, will have to spot the genuine commission from the imposter. Uh, and tell me if they are a red light or a green light. Uh, if Alison says that
5: they're a green light when they're a red light, who owns the IP? <laughs> like, I just do we to have clear, to, to, we have to
3: commission it at that point? Am I, am I contractually bound to put it on the DVD? This is how the
2: commissioning process works now, <laughs> yes. I understand. Welcome to the new commissioning world. <laughs> I'm, I'll, read out, I'll read out a short, uh, pithy synopsis of the show, and you buzz in with your names if you think it's a red light or a green light. Um, so, number one. The producers of Peep Show are teaming up with McTaggart Queen Michaela Cole to make a drama about sexual consent in the age of Tinder. I me? Where's
4: your, where's your, <laughs> <laughs> <That's> your name? <laughs> Hello, it's me. Uh, that that's Green Light. Green Lit. Green. It is Green Light. BBC. yeah. The BBC. yeah. yeah Michaela no, so Cole will really write
2: and star in a BBC Two series which has been working titled January twenty second. It's produced by Sam Bain and Jesse Armstrong's Indie Various Artists and Faulkner Productions, which is run by Cole. I mean, I'm just so excited. She's also in Black
4: Earth Rising, which is a BBC which two drama. Which looks great amazing really really good and I think that she's sort of I think in all the promotion that I've seen to it she seems to be like one of four characters like along with with John Goodman but she is I, I think the central role in that she's fantastic it, Idris isn't
2: going to be the next Bond so you know there's an opening there okay number two in keeping with a the rich theme of tele-revivals UK TV channel Watch is bringing back the weakest link with Sky News presenter Kay Burley calling the shots <laughs> For us, that's, that's clearly a red me. line that's that can't be red line <laughs> yeah, you can see it happen- Though, yeah, you know? she, I think she'd do it well. <laughs> I think we're really good. I also
4: love that you spent during the madness of the last two days. <laughs> yeah, you <laughs> <thinking laughs> <of> these real <laughs> and fake concepts. You know? that's, that's what, what I've been doing all the time. I've been. got the
2: whole notebook full of fake concepts. If anyone wants to see them, yeah. If there's TV commissioners out there, you know these are my ideas. Well, not and and and, and, and Becky, our producers. <laughs> to be fair, I'm not claiming full credit. Um, so number three. Uh, Channel 4 has commissioned a three-part series about the Blackpool grime scene titled It's Grime Up North. This is is a green light, (laughs) bizarrely,
5: because I'm sure Noisy have already done this documentary.
4: Yeah, Um,
5: maybe. So I'm a little bit surprised
2: that this has happened, but it's legit. It It is legit. And uh, the documentary series is made by BBC Studios. And it's the uh, second BBC Studios commission for Channel 4, following its investigation into London's monstrous fatberg earlier this year. Number four, so 2 1 to Faraz, you're winning. Uh, a fly on the wall documentary set in a liposuction clinic <laughs> with a host considering her own plastic surgery. I mean, I've seen the
4: show where people have revenge tattoos on each other. Uh, I'm not hearing an answer. No, I mean. <laughs> i do not say that anything is believable. Faraz, it's been greenlit. It's Cherry Healy.
5: Yeah. Uh, Faraz has done his homework. gone work. to the controller <laughs> sessions. I need to get some work. Slight, this is why I'm here. This is here. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so um, Cherry. Uh, it decided to, well, he's been thinking about getting some plastic surgery, apparently. So Dave, is it Dave? No, W.
2: And it is uh, it's Cherry Healy. It's called Sex, Lies and Liposuction. Number five, Netflix is going to follow the trials and tribulations of Sunderland football club. Alison,
4: this is
3: green light.
2: Yes. And
3: there was a hilarious moment where he said, I've never heard of Sunderland, um, but they still commissioned it. It looks good.
2: It does look good, yeah.
5: Full well have made it, and as usual, they've done a remarkable job of making something look incredible. Um, this thing's gonna be
2: a good watch. It's three one one to Faraz. and we're on the final one, so you've you've won. It's born to play for. But we'll <laughs> but we'll do it anyway. Gordon Ramsay meets inmates on death row in a notorious Texas prison to cook them their final meal, the Last Supper. <laughs> for ITV. I want to see this show regardless of whether it's green. I mean,
3: not... Alice, that's got to be a red light, isn't it? It's,
2: it is a red light. Yeah. <laughs> but you want
3: it commissioned. No, I
2: don't. No, I'm so just So this is, this is our producer Becky's suggestion, and I think it's brilliant. Uh, well, it's not happening, but Netflix have commissioned a World Cup-style international cooking competition called The Final Table. Do you know Which, what Which, from about what this?
4: I sort of saw from the trailer, it's MasterChef with flags.
0: Yeah, because they all got Gary also, Lineker in it. <laughs> MasterChef with <laughs> <is a> flags. <laughs> well, no, because it's all of the intensity
4: of MasterChef, and then there's a giant flag. So today you're cooking British food. There's a giant... <laughs> and and, like the, and they're they each, each cooks,
3: cooking an iconic dish from each nation, and the British dish is
4: the English breakfast. Did you see that? Oh, is, is it? It felt quite oh, depressing. Which is, I think even if you have a great English breakfast, you know, it's not you're not going to remember it for the rest of your life. It's still going to make you feel quite kind of... You know, full stomach, a bit <laughs> knackered, a bit lazy. You know, that's the whole point of an English breakfast. But who did,
3: yeah, it's got Jay Rayner, Kat yes. D- Lee, Gary lenoka D- They've spent cast. money on it. The set looked incredible, didn't it?
4: Yeah. I mean, but it's what they do. They have a show called Ultimate Beastmaster, which is basically Total Wipeout, and it's in nine different versions. So each, if you're watching, let's say, France, you have French commentators, and it's edited for a French audience. And it's like... The weirdness of all of these concepts, which is amazingly creative, but then I sort of think to myself, is anyone watching this? Well, that's the point,
2: isn't it? You know, who? How do we know if people watch? I I guess we know if if they recommission it.
5: Yeah. So I've got a weird theory about this. I I think that Netflix. Because if Netflix have to kind of serve you data, they have to have big data. So if you the less people that watch Netflix, it's kind of better for them. It's like a gym, right? When you go to a gym, there's loads of running machines. And if they're all used and knackered, no one wants to run on them. So you need to have lots of shiny stuff in your gym so you pay your subscription, but they never want you to actually go there. And it's, I kind of think is it could be a strategy for Netflix as well, because if nobody watches their stuff, they don't have to pay for as many server farms.
2: Everyone wins. They're just great at making promos. It's radical. You should be Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> very neat, very uh, yeah, neat. Yeah. So that means, Faraz, for you're the winner.
7: Yeah.
6: yeah. What,
2: do, I win? do I win the chance to lead the Labour Party? <laughs> yes. OK, that's your lot from us at this year's Edinburgh TV Festival. Thanks to my guests, Alison Kirkham, Faraz Osman and Scott Bryan. Get the next episode of the Media Podcast dedicated to you by taking out a voluntary subscription. Just visit themediapodcast.com forward slash donate and choose a donation that suits you. I'm Jake Cantor, the producer, Rebecca Grisdale sherry The Media Podcast is a PPM production. We'll be back in the autumn. So until then, goodbye.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's.